0: After taking a break of about eight weeks, seven of which was for a series on the church and one was for a candidating sermon by Kurt Pasdra, we are jumping in again to the pastoral letters. We started them and went all the way through First and Second Timothy, and then we took that break as the fall started and as we just decided it would be a good time to actually wrestle with the question of the church, especially in light of all that we've gone through In the last 18 months to say, what is the church and why is it important? What's it matter for us as believers and as participants in God's kingdom? But we didn't want to forget the pastoral letters or or, or not return back to the expository preaching that we normally do here. We stop for a series here and there or a sacred holy day in the Christian faith. But we generally want to say, Lord, we're going to work through your word and you teach us. If you remember, the the pastoral letters are those three books that Paul the Apostle wrote to, to two pastors, Timothy and Titus, Pastor Tim and Pastor Titus. Paul, if you remember, has written 13 of the 27 New Testament books. He was a violent attacker of Christianity. He was basically a terrorist against the Christian faith. He was a persecutor in light of International Day of Persecution. That's what he was. He was directly responsible for the killing of Stephen in the early part of Acts. They laid his clothes at at that point by a different name, the later Apostle Paul's feet. He had a radical conversion when God, interestingly enough, called him, chose him, related to what we'll talk about today, called him to be an apostle, a sent one, a missionary, and he became not just a missionary but a theologian. Titus, we don't know a lot about him, but here's just a brief summary. He was a longtime ministry partner of the Apostle Paul with nearly 20 years of ministry experience. In this letter, the Apostle Paul writes to him to encourage him in his ministry. These four verses that Doug Julian just read for us are a formal introduction. Notice Paul begins with his name and his title. Interestingly, He calls himself both an apostle and a servant. Again, that word servant is probably a little bit loose on our ears. The word could easily be, be translated slave. So while apostle carries this massive authority, right? There was only a few of them. This huge authority of one specifically called by Christ. No pastor today can claim that. Paul could. Yet he calls himself a slave, which is a demeaning low position. What a beautiful portrait of the Christian servant, one who is given this high authority and heir of the kingdom, and yet they are simply a slave to their master. Of course, he's a very good master. He died for them. They live in his death. How beautiful is the gospel. And by the way, you just partook partake in that when you received the bread and the cup, receiving for yourself the death of Christ and sing songs to him, declaring him, to be your master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Well, there are several things in this text that we could talk about this morning. Look, look at your text in your notes or in your Bible there, the middle of verse one, after introducing himself, the Apostle Paul says that he's writing to Titus for, this, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. The things he's going to talk about, he wants to exhort Titus for his ministry. And their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, I love this phrase, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Meaning we could talk about what verse 2 says about our hope in eternal life. We, We could totally sit there and wrestle with the fact that God never lies. Here's what he promises, and we could use this introduction to focus on that. Or we could even go back to the end of verse 1, and maybe this would actually be an important lesson for us in our day when the text says, and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness, meaning the purpose of knowledge is not so you can win in Bible trivia. You ever played Bible trivia, by the way? It's not so that you can win in Bible trivia. It's so that you can live a godly life. So that knowledge is meant to be a fuel that is exercised, not a cul-de-sac in which you boast. But I wanted to take this time and in an expository message, right, to say, okay, Lord, what are the things that we should hear from you today? We only have so much time. We really could do three. Those, th- those two ser- could have been separate sermons in and of themselves and would have been faithful to God's Word. But I thought I would take this time to focus on that early phrase, in the middle of verse one, where he says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Paul's greeting is driven by that word. That word is driving what he's talking about and arguably what he'll say in the rest of this letter. And that is the biblical doctrine of election. Loved Vera's talk to our kids. She's right. I don't even understand it. Kids, you may not understand it. Moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas, you may not understand it. In fact, the church has long called it a mystery. Why? Because it's a doctrine about God. Can anybody put their finger on God? Can anybody frame him in and explain his greatness? If you think you can, feel free to raise your hand, and we shall spend the rest of our time in the book of Job. Job where God has some questions for you. Where were you when I put the sun and the moon in this place? Where were you when I shaped the peak of the mountains? And all we would say after the first question is, I submit. You are God and I am not. That's the answer. That's where mystery takes us. He is God and we are not. So when God reveals aspects of himself, it is understandable that you and I would be, well, wait, 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 I don't understand that. Well, part of me has to say that's exactly the point because you're talking about God. That doesn't mean we don't talk about it. And I certainly don't wanna be the one to say, well, I'm gonna tell God what he is or isn't doing or what he can and cannot do. Because he is God and I am not. And maybe that, that's part of or the biggest takeaway of this morning from this topic. We walk away saying, God, you are massive. You are huge. Oh, by the way, that God that we're talking about is this massive, huge God. We just saying to him, is his love and his grace and his mercy. We just partake of, of, the, of the cup and the bread which symbolizes the gift of his son for us. So we know that whatever he's revealing about himself is ultimately based on love, compassion, and his own sacrifice for us. So we trust him even though We don't always understand. So I want to just look at two aspects of the doctrine of election. And the first is this. The doctrine of election is a solid footing in the Bible. It's not just something that heady, ivory tower, intellectual Christians have liked to debate in classrooms. Though I remember being in college and Christians in dormitories and cafeterias debating these things. And I almost wonder if that distorts the solid footing of this topic in scripture. But let me explain. Christians are repeatedly, and this is one of many, this verse one, that phrase God's elect. Christians are repeatedly called God's elect or God's chosen one, it, ones in scripture. In fact, just a couple weeks ago we preached from Colossians 3 and it says as God's chosen ones, put on then compassion, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Like that phrase is used everywhere and maybe we've just kind of we're kind of numb to it. We don't even realize it. But it's everywhere. This teaching has ancient grounding. This isn't some new thing that someone like the Apostle Paul is throwing out there. It's grounding in the election of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. God called him, said, I want you to leave what you know and trust me, and you don't even know where you're going. Even Hebrews in the Hall of Faith chapter 11 says Abraham went not knowing where he would go. How how about you type A people? How many of you would do that? I want you to pack your minivan. Get your kids in. Go ahead and get a book on CD. And I want you to start driving in the direction I will tell you. And all the type A's are like, no way, no way. I mean, give me an address. I gotta know where I'm going. What's the answer? Where are we stopping for lunch? God elected Abraham. And he elected and chose his descendants. And therefore, all of God's people are part of that election. That choosing. You think Jesus acted any differently? He didn't. Jesus also chose his disciples. He didn't walk into Jerusalem and say, hey, I'm like this messianic guy. Anybody want to follow? He literally went up to them. He chose political zealots and people that work for the Roman government, and religious conservative right-wingers. And he says, I want you, and you, and you, no fighting, we're gonna spend three years together. You want me? Yeah, you. Guy under the fig tree, come here, quit napping, come, let's go. And Jesus uses that same term, elect, to refer to those who would stay faithful to him. It's a birth from above. It's not something a mom and dad can even produce. It's not, it's not something you can produce in a laboratory. It's a divine birth. Again, that's language that we're just kind of used to hearing. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's Bible language. I've heard that from when I was a kid. But all of that is, is feeding this doctrine of election. In some, this is one of the most basic and yet important markers of the people of God in the Bible. Now again, this is also a very debated topic because it feels like the doctrine of election means well God is choosing some, but he's not choosing all. That's offensive in our day, especially in our democratic, free world kind of existence. I can't explain it all to you. In fact, the church has never tried to because God hasn't revealed it. If God hasn't revealed it, then we can't explain it. But there's a lot of things that we can't explain most of you get on an airplane, and there's a few. We've got airplane mechanic in this church and pilots. We do. Most of you can't explain all that's going on, but you sit in that plane. You might not even be nervous. You mock the guy next to you. What are you nervous about, man? This is less risky than driving in a car. But to be honest, you can't explain it. You're not like, oh, well, no problem. Let me explain all the parts of the plane. Even, this, even the science of it, you kind of get an idea. You got these big wings. They're doing something. But you can't put your finger on it in particular, yet you trust it, you live by it. How many of those things do we live by all the time? Christians cannot let human reason put God in a box. And this is one of the biggest challenges of the doctrine of election. The doctrine of election is basically saying this, God chose you. Now more of I say that, you're like, whoa, 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 wait a I got a couple questions, like, the, the Didn't I choose him? Oh, yeah, kind of. Does that mean he didn't choose other people? Likely. I don't understand that, or I don't like that. Fair enough. But the moment you try to have human reason to find God, you're doing what God condemned in the garden back in Genesis 3. You are not God. Does the clay speak to the potter? Or is he and she formed by him? But it is so hard for us not to let human reason dictate. Let let, let me give you an example. I have a degree, a doctoral degree in theology. You would think that a doctoral degree in theology would be a THD, but it actually is a PhD. What does PhD stand for? Doctorate of philosophy. But wait a second. All of my colleagues who were in literature and English, various sciences, what were their doctorates called? If it was an academic doctorate of university, guess what it was called? PhD. Now, why was it called a doctorate of philosophy when it wasn't actually a degree in philosophy? Well, because 200 years ago, technically 1803, at the founding of the University of Berlin, science was voted as king Over theology, i.e., human reason, was given the king position and God got moved to second place. The famous legend, don't know if it's true or not, but man, is it a cool story, is of Immanuel Kant, who at the University of Konigsberg in Germany. At the beginning of every university year in his academic garb, you may remember a couple of years ago, I wore my European academic garb. He would be wearing something like that. They would do an opening congregation service to the start of the university, and it would always be a chapel service. A lot of, a lot of schools do this, right? Because the founding of all universities was ultimately done by Christians. So not surprisingly, they would dedicate their activity to God and to Christ, and Immanuel Kant, a famous philosopher, was dead set against acknowledging anything, submitting himself to anyone other than human reason and the mind. So his famous thing is they'd be walking in procession, the university students in back the professors in the regalia up front, and they were walking down into this little valley, into this big chapel. And it was so famous, meaning Kant was so famous, that literally the entire town would gather to watch what Kant would do. And here's what Kant would do. As he was walking in, he would walk up, and just before he'd get to the door, with the whole procession going in, when he got to the edge of the door, he would, boom, stop. And the whole thing would back up behind him, and he would sit there. I don't know how long. Some say even for three to four minutes, not moving. And then, in in kind of a vivid way, he would swing his leg around to the side. He would not go in that chapel. And he would walk up, up a slight hill where he'd bought a house right next to the chapel, and he'd put a double-thick door. And the whole town would turn and watch as Professor Kant would walk up, open his door, and as full power he could slam it shut, and he would wait till that ceremony was over, and then he'd go to class. University of Berlin, following in his lead, removed theology as an academic discipline. It was viewed as subjective and personal. It wasn't scientific. Universities across the country, Princeton, Yale, moved their seminaries off of their main campus, will not give a PhD, they give a THD, And the philosophy department required every single doctoral graduate had to sit a second council under them to make sure they were truly qualified. Henceforth, all doctoral degrees, no matter what their discipline, were called PhDs. Doctor of philosophy. So for we are living in 200 plus years of our humanity, the brightest minds saying I will not accept Reasoning from some creator that I can't agree with or fully understand. And you know what the church says to that? Who do you think you are? Seriously? Where were you, old professor? Professor Kant. When the Lord made the first trees from which you did your double door? Or the mountain, Konigsberg, King's Mountain? Where were you when that mountain was formed, Professor Kant? The doctrine of election is saying that God is beyond our understanding. Now look with me at at, at that last point, point B. The doctrine of election is helpfully explained by the London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689, meaning Christians have wrestled this for a long time. And you might be saying, well, wait a second, this isn't even the Bible. Fair enough, but it's a tool that explains and puts together and draws together what the Bible says. And we often rely on tools. I bet you're not making your own screwdrivers at home. You're not like, I'm, I'm oh, what, what tools do you use? I make my own tools. No, you don't. You go to Lowe's or Home Depot, you don't make your own screwdrivers. I don't care how mechanical you are, and you're probably more mechanical than I. You're not making your own drills. You're going somewhere to buy a tool that is proven and tested and reliable to use in your own house. That's exactly what the creeds and confessions are they're a tool. So we went to Home Depot, which is in London, in 1689. And they put something together for us that has been time-tested since before America existed. And here is how they explain the doctrine, and we'll look at it briefly. God has decreed, stated, like the Word who spoke creation, so He speaks into it, has decreed in Himself from all eternity all things which shall ever come to pass. Now again, part of me is like, whoa, that is like a brain freeze of truth there's nothing outside of god's will brothers and sisters you you need you need to see the ministerial value of that truth and even though it raises questions and rightly so the church has said yet god is never associated with sin nor does god remove human will or second causes god is big enough to let us look like and act like we're choosing and we really are choosing we're guilty of our sin and yet god's Big C choosing is beyond ours and through ours and better than ours and comprehensive over ours. Second, God's election is not based on anything he foresaw in the future or because it would come to pass under certain conditions. It's not like, well, that that scripture reader, Doug Jolene, he's a good guy. He'll believe in me. I choose him based upon what he will eventually do. No, no. It wasn't based on you, it's based on him. Third, by God's decree and for his glory. Here's a toughie. Some men and angels are predestined or ordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ. To the Notice this phrase. To the praise of his glorious grace. And others are left to act in their sin to their just condemnation to the praise of his glorious justice. See those last two words? Either way, God's holiness is Satisfied. And that's the key. Fourth, God's elect are chosen, quote, solely out of his free grace and love, without anything in the creature as a condition or cause of moving him to choose, and in accordance with his eternal purposes and the secret counsel of good pleasure of his will. Again, the moment you're like, well, that's leaving me with too little. That's because you're little and God is huge. Fifth, God has foreordained all the means of the elect, meaning the process from new birth to fully matured life. He calls to faith in Christ by His Spirit in due season. Some He does through the teaching of a mom or a dad when they're little boy or girl. Others, they live through years and years of rebellion and sin And finally, in adulthood, they come to faith in Christ. There are others that literally on their deathbed, like the thief on the cross, they taste their mortality, and they weep and ask for grace. He justifies them. He adopts them. He sanctifies them. He grows them into maturity. And he keeps them by his power through faith unto salvation. Finally, and this is the one that speaks into what we've already said a little bit of, the doctrine of this this is a quote "high mystery of predestination, high mystery, is to be handled with special prudence and care so that all may be assured of their eternal election, meaning it's important. So I, in closing, I, I came up with some applications and some implications of the doctrine of election and Let me give those to you as we end our time and before we close in a song. Election explains how God thinks about, acts toward, and is working in us. It explains. It doesn't mean we understand fully. It just means this. There is not a person outside of God's perfect provision and will. Like, that's how God's working. God's working in our kids, young or grown. He is working in us. He is working in his church. He will not fail, and we trust his providence. Here, Maybe this is one of the biggest takeaways of the doctrine of election. It causes you to trust God more. Trust him. Trust him. Second, election reminds us how big God is and how small we are. Where were you? Let that phrase echo through your mind. Where were you when you're tiny? Immanuel Kant is long gone. Long been buried. Teaching no more. His house is probably no longer there. Maybe it is and I don't know. The ceremonies have stopped. He'd be happy about that. The secular schools have completely adopted the doctrine of human reason and philosophy over God's creation and election. But God is still God. God is huge. Maybe that's it for you kids. You're hearing all these words, and you're still trying to figure out election. Does that mean it's a Tuesday in November? No. You know what election means, kids? God is big. That's the exact same thing your moms and dads are going to hear today. God is huge. He's huge. Third, God, election magnifies God's glory because it makes it less about all these competent, intelligent, winsome individuals, and it declares to all the universe, it has always been about God. He is the beginning and the end, the alpha and the mega, the first and the last. It's always been about God, and God is glorified whether we have our hearts confessing our sin and worshiping him in praise, and God is glorified whether we, we, we fight against him with our fist clenched in the air and we receive just condemnation. He is glorified either way. And again, that second doesn't sit well with us in our free world egalitarian culture, but that's just the biblical story that we need to hear. God is glorified. At the name of Jesus, the apostle Paul says, Every knee will bow. And you know what that means? That doesn't mean just a humble Christian man who worships God for 50 years in church. You know whose knee will bow? Immanuel Kant. He can deny him for his 70 years of life and build his double door rebuke to slam before the ceremony, but one day Professor Kant will kneel before Jesus Christ, who is the Lord. Election number four encourages us as we strive to obey God. It's so hard to be a faithful Christian. How, how am I supposed to do this in my own power? I fail over and over again. Lord, help me. And God says, I am. I will sustain you. And I am the source of your faithfulness. I am the one that's grounded in your eternal hope. Fifth election helps us as we seek to serve God. Lord, What am I supposed to do? Where am I supposed to go? Have you abandoned me? Are you not directing me? Oh, no. From start to finish, God is tending to his children in every way and his church. You think God is concerned about, not that he doesn't mourn or work against persecution, but do you think God is like, well, persecution's picked up in 2020 since COVID. We got some real issues. Or God's like, I will use all things for my glory. Even in his mystery, right, the wealthiest country on the planet, maybe the history, is dwindling in worship of God, and broken, poor, struggling countries, they're having revivals. Because God can say, you know what he can say to any nation? What are you putting your strength in? Is it your military power and your might? Is it all your money and you never have to worry about what you're going to eat for lunch? Is that what you worship? I will satisfy a country that has thousands of people killed. They will know true peace because they will know me. And I will let you have all your food and all your comfort and all your military. You go ahead and worship that. Election helps us as we seek to serve God, even in this country. Finally, election shepherds us to put our hope in God. How did our text go in verse 2? In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the age began. Brothers and sisters, you, if you know Jesus Christ, are God's elect. May the mysterious doctrine of election humble you. Don't just let it become a philosophical debate in your mind. Fair enough. It's worth asking more questions. It's worth reading through the confession again and thinking through it in your small group, with your family. Fair enough, sure. Fair enough, you come and we chat and we talk about it over coffee. Love to, great. Yes, sure. But let it be a shepherding guide for you let the mysterious doctrine of election humble you and deepen your trust in God. And if anything, here's a takeaway for kids and adults alike. We are so small. And God is so big. And we just acknowledge that today. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your goodness to us. And even with things that are highly debated and heated, not just outside the church, certainly in the world, about having any authority or power to a God that is not of our own making, Lord, that is just pure offense. And we breathe that air and drink that water, Father. It's hard for us not to be offended ourselves. But if anything, Father, beyond the complexity and even through the mystery, help us to see how this teaches us humility. And also the simple fact that, God, you are amazing. So open our eyes and just as much, Father, open our hearts to know you as you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.